Uh, take your Bibles, please, if you would, and head over to the book of Romans once again. And we're beginning chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, uh, this morning. This morning it is our plan, my plan, to look at the first 14 verses. What I want you to keep in mind as we come to this passage, but really all of the Bible and certainly the New Testament, is that the indicatives of Scripture always precede the imperatives. Thanks, Jeff. That was great. Very helpful. Let me explain what I mean. The truths of God's Word and the realities of the Gospel always come before Scripture's commands. Scripture does not command us to do anything without first reminding us of what God has done for us and who God is. I think we oftentimes get ourselves twisted and uh, we get ourselves worked up and frustrated and perhaps even despairing when we view the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, without first immersing ourselves in the truths of Scripture, the realities of the Gospel. To do the imperatives of Scripture on our own is impossible. This is something that we should know because of the law. This has been Paul's point really up to this point in the letter, especially writing to a predominantly or at least a partial Jewish audience who is still trusting in their ethnicity and in the law for their holiness, for their righteousness, for their standing before God. And Paul has debunked that. Uh, he has uh, essentially argued against that up to this point, and yet it is still our tendency, our temptation, to hear what Scripture says we ought to do and to attempt to do it without reminding ourselves of the truths of Scripture, the reality of the Gospel, and how those things then are possible and what God has done for us based on Christ. We're going to see Paul do both here. He really doesn't get into the larger the imperatives of the letter until chapter 12. But even here in chapter 6, he's going to balance this, indicatives and imperatives, truths and commands, All right, even as he presents this material that he wants to relate to us next. Chapter 6 is by and large divided up into two parts. The first part has to do with death and life and the truth of what happened on the cross and through Christ and what we have as a result and I would say who we are as a result. And then in the, starting in verse 15 of chapter 6 he's going to talk about slavery and freedom. How that works itself out in our lives and what that looks like. And so we want to turn our attention then this morning to the first 14 verses, this idea, this contrast between death and life. So follow along if you would as I read Romans chapter 6, the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. One of Paul's favorite phrases. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. Paul, as you know, is a master uh, logician and someone who is a master at rhetoric. He knows how to present an argument and follow it through. He just finished off, as we saw last Sunday, Romans 5, 20 and 21. And what he says in verse 20 is that wherever there is sin, grace superabounds. Whatever our sin is, grace is superabundant. What then might be a quote-unquote logical thought if you are someone especially who is enamored with the law, living under the law, what might you think? Well, if grace is always there every time I sin, then a couple things. First, then woohoo, let's sin, because there's all kinds of grace. So if God's grace means that my sin is taken care of, it's on the cross, it's covered by the blood of Jesus, then have at her. Let's, let's have a good time. And actually, let's go one step further, if every time there is sin, there's more grace, then wouldn't it make more sense to sin a lot so there could be lots of grace? What does Paul say then? Notice, he wants to first let us know about the new life. This whole section here, these 14 verses, is all about the new life that we have in Christ. And the first place in verses 1 and 2, he wants to know is the truth about the new life. There's a misunderstanding here in verse 1. What shall we say then, he says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This misunderstanding, this radical misunderstanding of grace, a misunderstanding of grace that is a long history throughout church history. This is one of the reasons why some denominations still require things like confession and rules and regulations. Lots of churches, heavy on the commands. Because the idea is, or the thought is, if we really tell people that they are free in Christ, forgiven in Christ, then what is the incentive for them to live a holy life? So yeah, 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 we know about grace. Yeah, that's great. We love grace. woo grace, Grace Baptist Church, that's great. But really what we need to let people know is, yeah, 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 but. Because we totally misunderstand grace. And Paul knows that. He knows who he is writing to, this church at Rome. Gentiles who have not been brought up under the laws and have a concept of life under these Levitical commands, and also Jewish Christians who are 
looking to these Levitical commands for their salvation. And Paul writing to that audience says, so this kind of thinking, is this what we're supposed to take away from what I just said at the end of chapter 5? Wherever there's sin, there's grace, and we thank God for that. So then, well, let's just sin a lot, and then we'll get more grace. Notice what he says then in verse 2. By no means. This is a very strong negative. Paul has used it before, he will use it again. It's one of the key phrases in the book of Romans, throughout the book. He presents something, an argument, a position, a reality, and then he understands or anticipates what people will think in relation to that. Yeah, but what about, and so then he says, okay, let's talk about the yeah, what about, and he says, by no means. May it never be. Notice back in chapter 3 and verse 8, quickly if you would. He's already run up against this. Why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We've already dealt with this, and Paul's already dealt with this. Every time Paul tries to talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and he lays it out, especially to those that were brought up under and still living under the law, he gets this pushback. Oh, so what you're saying, Paul, is that we should just have a free-for-all because of grace. That's what you're saying. It's come to be known in our culture as the Newman effect because of a now famous interview between Jordan Peterson and Kathy Newman where Kathy Newman from the BBC kept saying to Jordan Peterson, so what you're saying is, and that's not what he was saying at all. And, And Paul anticipates this. So, Paul, what you're saying is then, cast off the law and everybody just runs around and has a, a great time in their sin. And Paul says, no, that's not what I'm saying. Because there are two truths, and it's these two truths that come in verse 2 that he's going to unpack for the rest of this section. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So the first truth is that we have died to sin. Our old nature, the old us, the previous us, the us pre-Christ, was under the dominion of, the reign of, the power of, the tyranny of sin. He uses this language in chapter 5. King death, king sin. We were in their kingdom and they were ruling and reigning over us. And as much as we yelled and screamed about free will and free choice, the reality is that we always used our free will and free choice to sin. We have choice, we have will, but we've always used it to sin because we were in the realm of king sin and therefore king death. And they had the final word in a sense, that they were powerful over us. That's the old us. But Paul says now, Jesus Christ conquered king sin and king death, and therefore if we're in him, we have new life in him. And the the old us is no longer or should no longer be how we behave because there's a new us. He will say in the letter to the church at Corinth, the old has passed, behold, the new has come. So we've died to sin. Sin is dead to us. I was looking for an illustration of this, and the first thing that popped into my head is back when Esther and Titus were quite young, I'm not even sure if Titus was even here yet, uh, Mel and I went to the Toronto Zoo. And in the Toronto Zoo, there is a primate area, and a a big part of that exhibit is a large glassed-in area inside a big building, and it has some silverback gorillas in it. 
And we were there. I know there was an umbrella stroller. I can't remember who was in it, either Esther or Titus. And uh, we were observing the gorillas, and they were fairly sedate, a number of females and the large male, and seemed to be well away from the glass. We're kind of looking, and after a few minutes, it was a little bit boring, and so I think we both kind of turned away, and then all of a sudden, wham, a gorilla jumped up and smacked the glass. Now, I assume that Mel grabbed the kids, because I was halfway there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was that moment of, like, there's a gorilla loose in the zoo. <laughs> and then, of course, almost immediately, your mind, sort of your rational part of you that's now hopefully more in charge, and the fear part of you is like, oh, they've been behind glass the whole time. <laughs> they, they can't get out. In that way, that's kind of sin in our lives, or, or what it ought to be. It looks big. It looks powerful. It seems that temptation is insurmountable. We must give in until we realize sin is dead to us. No longer has any power. It's behind bars, so to speak. Maybe even a better illustration is perhaps imagine in your mind's eye that you live in a castle. Maybe you already think you do. That's great. And in that castle, there's a big drawing room, massive hearth, roaring fire, and one of your ancestors killed a large grizzly bear, a large Kodiak bear, and it's stuffed, beautiful taxidermist job, and it's sort of sitting there in like the angry pose, not how it was when it was shot, but you know, you have to sort of make the story nice. And it's in that drawing room. And every once in a while, you'll walk in that room at night, and in the shadows and the light cast by the fire, you're like, huh, and then you realize, oh yeah, that's been long dead. That's kind of like sin in our lives, Paul is saying. Sin used to have power over us. In fact, it was reigning over us. It had dominion over us. But Paul says, guys, that's the old you. That's the old pre-Jesus you. That died with Jesus. There's now a new you. Because what does he say in the second place? We have new life. How can we who died to sin still live as if it has dominion over us? As if it's still alive? It's a stuffed bear. No more scary than the one that you take to bed with you at night. But it can look imposing. It can look like scary. Because we remember what it was like to be under the dominion of sin. Paul reminds us that is no longer the case for us. This is the indicative. This is the reality that we must remember. Because at the end of this chapter, or this section, I should say, he's going to get into the imperatives. But the imperatives are despairing. They are frustrating. They are impossible without the indicatives. Remember, Grace Baptist, sin no longer has the final say in your life. And death no longer is the final verdict. Death is a defeated foe. Sin is a defeated foe. Jesus put death to death. That's what Paul wants to remind us of, the resurrection. We just celebrated it. We celebrated every Sunday. We celebrated it even more so last Sunday at Easter. So this is the truth about the new life, the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Remember that, Paul says. Therefore, what is this foundation of the new life then? Before we get to the application, the, the results of that, he wants to just expand on this a bit more. So first of all, in verses 3 and 4, he uses an analogy. 
a ready analogy that comes to his mind and would be known by the church in Rome. He goes to baptism. So he says, just as you were baptized into Christ and were raised from the water, symbolic of you being raised to new life from the dead, so too now, he says, you have died to sin and should walk in newness of life. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is now the amazing ability to not sin. Grace is not an excuse to keep on sinning. No, grace now gives us a new life that has the power to resist sin. Before, we always thought we were in control. We always thought we were in charge. But the reality is we never were. Because every single time we chose sin. And we, because we have choice, we think somehow we're in charge. Those are two very different things. Our choices were always sinful because we were never in charge. Now, we are free. Free in Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. And he's going to talk about that freedom starting in verse 15. But here he has the latest foundation of the difference and the reality of us being dead now to sin and alive in Jesus Christ. And what a powerful analogy baptism is. It's not just an empty initiatory rite. We are, after all, Baptists. It's a big deal for us because it is symbolic to us of the reality that is the inner reality in us. We are saying whenever we have a baptism to the world, I am a follower of Jesus Christ as I am standing or sitting in the baptismal tank as we do it here it is a picture of Jesus on the cross. I'm identifying with Christ on the cross. And as I go under the water, I'm saying, I'm dead. The old me is dead. And when I come up out of the water, it's a symbol of a picture of the reality that now I'm new. There's a new me. Paul will say it in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he says, I live, but yet not I. He says, but Christ lives in me. It's a brand new me. The old me was under the dominion of, the tyranny of, the rule and reign of sin and death. The new me is infused with life from Jesus Christ, freedom in him. What a powerful analogy that Paul uses, well known in the church and certainly in the church of Rome. Now notice that phrase, do you not know? Take some time and count how many times, just in the first 14 verses, he uses that word know. He wants to remind them always of the indicatives the truths of Scripture. Don't you know, he says, were you not taught at the time of your baptism what baptism means? Are you not aware of what this is? You're dead. Now you're still alive physically, but the old you, the I always have to sin you, the I really enjoy sinning you, the sin is my favorite thing to do you, that's dead. There's a new you. New in Jesus Christ. Two things then, and, and again an expansion of what he just said in verse 2. First of all, sin is powerless over us. First part of verse 4 and 5, but let's key in on verses 6 and 7 because he, he wants to expand on this and explain a little bit more. We know, he says again in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Something he's going to expand on starting in verse 15 next week. For the one who has died 
has been set free from sin. Here's the reality. As believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, given a new nature from above, it is a fact of our lives and of Scripture that we never have to sin. We do sin. We thank God that there is forgiveness for all of our sins. And if we confess them, he is faithful and just to forgive us of them. But the reality is, sin seems powerful. Sin seems, the temptation seems insurmountable, unavoidable. We must give in. But Paul says, you know that's not the truth. Do you not know, he says, that your body of sin's been crucified with Jesus Christ? That sin that seems like that stuffed bear or that big gorilla, it seems powerful, it seems scary, it's dead. It's no longer alive in your life. You've been freed from sin, from its tyranny and its power and enslavement. Understand then, he says, believer in Jesus Christ, sin no longer has any power over you. We have been saved in Jesus Christ, justification from the penalty of sin. He's going to say in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those in Jesus Christ. One day we will be saved from even the presence of sin when we are glorified, something he alludes to also later on in chapter 8. But here he's talking about sanctification. We are gradually being released from and are always free from the power of sin. And we still sin. But understand, we never have to. Some people say, well, the devil made me do it. No. They say, well, I, I just I couldn't help it. Never the case. Paul says, remind yourself of what you know. You are dead to sin. That formerly scary, that formerly seemingly powerful reality of sin and death is dead. Christ killed it. He died on the cross and rose again to life from the dead the third day. In a different kind of resurrection, which we'll get to in just a moment, because he says now we have a powerful new life. Again, in five, 4 and 5b, the second part of verse 4 and the second part of verse 5, he, he introduces this again and, and, and expands on it. But notice verses 8 to 10. Now if we have died with Christ, we will we'll also live with him. Both things are true. If we participated in, in a sense, the death of Jesus Christ, if we've been crucified with Christ, we also will be raised with him. We know, he says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's a bit of a bummer, but Lazarus died twice. So did everybody else who was raised to life from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son. Matthew's gospel tells us when the curtain in the temple, the veil in the temple was rent in two, and Jesus said it is finished and gave up the ghost, the graves were open, and many saints came out of the graves. That would have been a wild time to be in Jerusalem around that time. But every single one of those individuals died again. Jesus will never die again. And if you're in him, neither will you. It's a different kind of death and a different kind of resurrection. He says he died to sin once for all. Done. He'll never die again. And that scary sort of specter of death that always hangs over us like the sword of Damocles, the reality that we are mortal beings, 
it's not scary anymore or doesn't have to be because Jesus Christ the righteous has put death to death. It doesn't have dominion over him. So that voice of sin, that, that monarch of sin, that tyrant of sin that says you have to live this way, the way that you used to live, is dead. You know that, Paul says. And you also know that you now have the power of Christ in you to live a life that is markedly different, that is consistently more like him. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's dead. He died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives now to God. These are all things that we must know. If we don't know these things, then verses 11 to 14 are going to frustrate us a lot. But oftentimes we come to these commands in Scripture and we say, okay, don't sin. Great. I'm going to not sin today. And what's the first thing we do? We sin. And we're like, ah, I can't do this. What has Paul said? Always, always, always lead with truth. Indicatives always precede imperatives. Always lead with what you know, he says, before you talk about or think about what you're going to do. And he brackets this. Notice the results of the new life then, in closing. This is, how, this is what it looks like to be in Christ. So verses 11 and 14 are brackets, once again, of the knowledge. Shelby mentioned it. Rehearse this to yourself every moment of the day. Remind yourself of the gospel. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider is the exact same word that he uses previously where he says that God considers us as righteous as Christ. He reckons Christ's righteousness to our account. And we consider our sin paid for. Same idea. Remember, he says, church at Rome, and to us this morning, remember Grace Baptist Church. Remember who you are. In Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. Remember that. You're not who you used to be. You're not that person anymore. That person died when you uh, were brought into new life in Jesus Christ. At the point of your conversion, that old you died, and there's now a new you. So he says in verse 11, remember this, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for sin will no, have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Sin, that scary thing that seems like it's very powerful and big and cannot be defeated, has already been defeated by Jesus Christ. Remember that, he says. Sin does not have dominion over you. That thing that you've been struggling with for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, since before you got saved and you're still struggling with it, Paul says, reckon yourself, consider yourself dead to that. Understand, for as much as that temptation feels insurmountable, unavoidable, indefeatable, understand, Paul says, it's already been defeated. It's dead in Jesus Christ. Remember who you are. Remind yourself daily of who you are in Jesus Christ. Rehearse the gospel to yourself every day. So then in verse 12 and 13, these now, Paul's going to talk about a few imperatives here. He doesn't really open this up until chapter 12, so quite some time. He always notices letters. First half, indicatives. This is what you know, he says, the church of Ephesus, Colossae, Corinth, Thessalonica. This is what you know. So based on what you know, this is how you should live. But he doesn't start with the do this, don't do that. He starts with the know this. Right? But he, he puts a little bit of it here in verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 
He said, live knowing sin is a defeated foe. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Who has sinned to tell you what to do? It's dead. Who has sinned to boss you around? It's dead. Again, we do give him the temptation. We do live like we still are the old us. Paul says, don't do that. You're the new you, so live that way. Because the old way is dead. It has no power. There's no business coming in and bossing you around. One of the commentators gave an illustration I thought was helpful. He said he knew somebody that was in the Marine Corps. And as soon as they got off the bus, there was a particular sergeant that seemed to delight in bossing them around. And it got to the point where every time that sergeant even came into the mess hall or into their barracks, wherever it was, immediately back straight, ramrod straight, feet in, arms at your sides. You didn't want to get yelled at. You didn't want to get screamed at. He had great power over these recruits. They go through basic. They go all the way through. And then this individual was actually being honorably discharged from the Marines. They had a, a parade. And then after that, he was back in his civilian clothes. He's done. He's out of the Marine Corps. And this sergeant comes around into his view, and immediately he drops his bags and goes ramrod straight, and then he realizes, I'm out of the Marines. <laughs> the sergeant is just another dude. He no longer has the authority to come in and say, do this, don't do that. It's over. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Don't let, don't let sin tell you you have to do this. Sin's making you do these things. Sin can't do that anymore. It's dead. It has no say. You're under the rule of King Jesus. You're now of the kingdom of Lord Christ. Sin no longer has a say. Before it did, that was the old you. The new you is dead to that. Live, he says, knowing sin is a defeated foe. It, it speaks loudly. It's very flashy and enticing. It makes a lot of noise, but it's dead. Remember that, Paul says. And then the last place, live who we are, not who we used to be. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, as weapons of war against God, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments for righteousness, weapons to battle against sin and for godliness. He says to the church at Rome, listen, you know, and he said it repeatedly through this passage, you know these things. I'm not telling you to do something on your own. I'm reminding you of what you know, so that, that leads to a change in what you do. Belief influences behavior. Do you know that you're dead to sin? And do you know that you're alive to God? If you know that, he says, then don't live like you used to be. Don't live who you used to be. Live who you now are. You're changed. You're free, forgiven, and loved in Jesus Christ. Live that way. Now. I've said it numerous times. I love the quote from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, formerly a captain on a slave ship. Thousands of human lives lost under his command. He knew who he was, but he knew who he now was in Jesus Christ. That's why he penned Amazing Grace. And he says, I'm not who I want to be, 
I'm not who I ought to be, but by the grace of God, I'm no longer who I used to be. That's us, Grace Baptist. Paul knew there was a very good possibility when Paul stepped into a church in this time period that there were relatives of people that died because of him. He was constantly reminded of who he used to be, but thank God he constantly rehearsed who he now was in Jesus Christ. That's not who I am. I was that, but that, that person is dead. This is who I now am in Jesus Christ. Grace Baptist, may that be true of us this morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we close. Father, I thank you so much for the truths of your word. This is what anchors our soul. To attempt to defeat sin under our own power, we know is useless. We tried before Jesus, and it never worked. But Father, now that we are in Jesus Christ, now that we have the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us, now that our old self is dead, and we have a new self. We are a new creation in Christ. Father, help us to remind ourselves of that every single moment of every single day. This is who we are. We can readily admit that that's who we used to be because we know who we now are only because of Jesus Christ, which makes the allure and even the possibility of living the old way, it ought to make that so grotesque to us that the thought of sinning, that grace may abound, would cause us to echo with Paul. May it never be. What a, what a grotesque, disgusting misunderstanding of grace. Your grace, Father, it's not extended to us so we can keep on living as if it doesn't exist. Your grace is extended to us so that we can show forth and shine forth you. We have been made new. Why are we living like we're still old? We have been made righteous. Why are we living as if we're still under the tyranny of sin and death? Father, remind us of these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.